Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 14th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Universities say they are underfunded by some 140 million euro a year. It's a lot of money for a government to find, but it is a problem that has been brewing for years. The solution to finding millions extra lies perhaps in the Castles report commissioned by government and published three years ago. It made three recommendations or three options, if you like, the abolition of the student contribution and the creation of a predominantly state-funded system, the continuation of the current student contribution charge coupled with increased state investment and the introduction of an income-contingent student loan system. The Minister for Education, Joe McHugh, says, however, that the government is not in a position to choose any of the three options. Not now, anyway. McHugh says this is because the government doesn't have strong enough of a mandate and that it would have to wait until after a general election before the government would have big enough of a majority in the doll to bring about change. Let's talk about this with Fina Falls spokesperson on education, Thomas Byrne, who's a TD for Meath East and on the line. And you say the minister is abdicating his responsibility. Well, absolutely. Uh, first of all, Michael, the Castle's report is about a lot more even than those three options because there are there are other things that Castle's recommends that the state does um, and the doll does to implement its recommendations to give more funding to third level. I think everybody has agreed that third level needs more funding. And where you see the result of the lack of funding, Michael, is actually in the class sizes at third level. We often talk about class sizes, particularly at primary. But a lot of university class sizes are absolutely massive. And you're talking some first years going into college now in arts, in law in particular. Um, in some colleges, there'll be up to 400 people in, in lecture halls. Um, and what's happening now as well is that the students aren't getting the same opportunities that some of us would have got from when we were in university where you'd have small tutorials as well uh, with a very small group of pupils. And there's simply the universities aren't able to do these in some cases now uh, because they don't have the money effectively for teachers. Uh, what's happening then is a vicious circle as well because uh, Irish universities are going down in the rankings uh, internationally where that really has an impact is mm. uh, in terms of foreign students from outside the EU come in and pay huge fees. They're not as interested in coming to this country uh, when we're down the rankings. And then the fees that they pay, which are huge, uh, are taken away then from the funding as well. So so I think the, the first principle of the Castle's report really is that the state needs to fund 
uh, more into third level. Now, we have tried to get more into third level uh, from our position of the opposition. There has been some uh, improvement uh, in, in, in third level funding over the last number of years, but it's been very, very miserable, really. And I think that what's happening now is, and the very fact that I think this is the first major intervention by the Minister of Education on third level. Now, he has a, he has a junior mm. minister for third level, but it's the first time, really, he's spoken in, in a big way about it in his um, nine months, certainly, in office. It, I think it shows the priority that third level has uh, for, the, for the now, government. Were, were you not very pleased after the last budget and the increases allocated to third level? Well, what I was pleased about, Michael, was one of the Castle Support's uh, recommendations was in fact implemented before the last budget. And that was to put a, a very slightly higher rate of, of PRSA, PRSI on employers. Um, but what happened actually then, and we, we, we didn't, I have to be honest, we did not realise this at the time of the budget. It only became clear when the estimates were published and the government actually published the detailed uh, money that they're spending. It turned out that while the government did increase uh, slightly uh, as Castle's recommended, the employer employer contribution, not by one percent. What they did was then they took away with the other hand. So in terms of the the general state funding coming from the general mm. taxation was actually reduced slightly in the last budget. Now that only became apparent uh, when the minister came in to talk through the detailed estimates. Mm. And uh, the the, the wool was. But, but were you not saying you put your Fianna Fáil stamp on the last budget? Oh well, we did. We did. I mean, look. I mean, we on, we we on we, we third have, level we have, education funding. Well, third level, well, that has happened. So that, that part of the so castle... So what are you giving trying, out about? Well, what I'm giving, we've tried to get the castle's report implemented, OK, insofar as we can at the moment, OK? So one of the one of the items is to get more uh, funding from, from the government for third level. And that has happened to a very limited extent, OK? It's, it's better than nothing else was happening before under Fine Gael and Labour in the last government. Uh, but I think what, what's happened is a small amount of extra money has been put into the system... Uh, but what happened last year, as I said, was uh, that the employer levy was increased slightly, and that was to uh, give a significant injection and keep keep the system afloat nearly for another year. Um, in terms of the, what I mean by afloat is just the increase that was needed to keep things to keep things right. Uh, but they took away with the other hand, and that was that was not clear at the time of the budget, and that became clear at the time of the estimates some months later. Uh, and I raised that at the estimates. Uh, so we're not happy with the way uh, this government has dealt with third level. Uh, in relation, but you're to the part of the government, and you said you brought about change uh, in terms of funding third level education through the last budget, and you hailed that as a success for Fianna Fáil. Yes, what I hailed was, and I've just said, what I hailed was the employer levy. But what happened was then that the government decided then, after that, to take away general state funding for third level, a very small amount, but it meant what it meant that. While there, while there certainly is an increase from last year to this year in terms of third level funding, um, that increase should have been greater had the government not taken away some of the, the, the general taxation money uh, that it had given. So the, and the then you abstained on, on voting on the budget uh, in order to support the government uh, in the same way that Fianna Fáil put its stamp on housing and abstained from voting in the budget in order to continue supporting the government. Well... You know, I can go through this again. We have we have a confidence supply agreement, okay? And we're we're what we want to do is our forty uh, forty D's in the doll. We want to make mm. sure uh, that we're getting value for the votes that we got and that we're using our influence. We yeah. don't have a majority. We're not in government. No, but we have forty four TDs now. You have asked me on multiple occasions over mm. the last number of years uh, why we abstained on something. You know, and the reality is, had we not abstained at all those various points that you've asked me about over the last few years. Mm. We would have had elections. Now, we took the, the judgment 
uh, at, at those times. And sometimes it's very difficult circumstances. To support actually, the government. And now no, that, now, that no. we're, now that we're approaching the autumn and the new term, it's topical to say that universities are underfunded it's, and the government is abdicating its responsibility. Michael, Michael, this, is the, this is the this same is government that you support. Sorry, of course of course it's topical because leaving set results came out yesterday. Yes. But the truth is that this is an issue that I've been raising uh, and my party leaders have been raising ever since we went into the, the conference of the 2016 after the 2016. Well, is Joe McHugh right in saying that he cannot bring about change in how third-level institutions are funded because he, well, can't, he, get never, the, because he, he never, can't get because he can't get the numbers in the doll? Well, well uh, no, he's not correct, OK? Um, he has never, nor his predecessor, have never approached me with a view to talking about this particular issue. We had cross-party uh, meetings of the Oireachtas Education Committee about this issue, uh, where we engaged very seriously on it, mm. where we uh, listened to all the parties. We came to the conclusion then, and, and CAS has recommended this, in fact, before any system would be brought in or any change would be made, we came to the conclusion that an economic study would need to be done as to how you would actually implement a loan system if you were to bring it in. Now, the government took on that job to do that. We, as a committee, tried to get various organisations, ESRI, maybe private economists to do this. But what the mm. government did was, and this is a reasonable position to take, uh, was to go to the European Commission to ask them to do a study on it. Now, what's happened there is that that's been delayed absolutely inordinately. So they haven't done uh, their job on this in terms of looking at it. I mean, for somebody paying uh, fees this year who don't qualify for a grant, mm. or somebody paying um, you know, college accommodation costs, perhaps a loan from the state rather than a loan from one of the banks uh, would be better, but so, we don't know that. So the problem is that the European Union hasn't done its job, is that no, 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 sorry, no, absolutely not. The problem is that the government didn't get its ducks in a row to get that into the European Union uh, to get that study done into the European Commission. That's the problem there. They seem to delay and delay and delay, and they sat on this for a long, long time, and then eventually they said, uh, this is what, this is what uh, we're doing. But I have never been approached uh, by Fine Gael in relation to this. Never been approached. And the Fine Gael interaction in relation to the Castle support and the committee okay. was minimum, okay. to say the you, least. You've brought a, a lot of problems to the table this morning. Have you any solutions to offer? Well, I mean, the, the, the solutions that we've offered, first of all, is that the primary recommendation in Castles is that the state needs to fund a third level to a greater degree, whatever option is picked. Even if you went for a loan system, and we're not convinced by a loan system because we, we're not, you know, nobody has explained to us how it will work. Nobody has actually said this will work and this will be affordable. And that's why the economics that it needs to be done. But even if you were to bring that in, you need to have more state funding. In yeah, you have to system. give the money to lend out to the students, in other words, yeah. No, 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 not at all. Totally separately from any loan system, the no. system needs more funding, more more, more taxation uh, on, money. Like uh, on top of that money that you'd be lending On top of it, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so that has, they haven't even started that mm. process. So whatever option you pick in castles, whether you say it's entirely state-funded, whether you say we keep it similar mm. to what it is now, or if you say we bring in a loan scheme, the government has to pay more in every single case. And they have not. So, so, so okay. that's, that's your starting point, actually, with Castle. Okay. And they, so, so, they haven't made any serious effort. And so, so, is that so you're accepting that, and you would do it how and when? Well, what we want to do, obviously, is, 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 is obviously there's a budget this year, and we have used our influence to get some extra funding at the third level over the last number of years. There is some extra funding, not enough. 
Uh, but it's going to have to be. Th- th- we're going to have to prioritise this as much more of an issue. And the reality is, Michael, that apart from, and I have to say you've raised this issue quite a number of times on the show with me and with others, but apart from this time of year, the whole issue of third level funding doesn't get significant political traction. Now, we've tried to change that by prioritising that. And I think the, yeah. the you know, other other media, I think, need to emphasise this a bit more rather than simply at times like this, this, this particular time of the year. Because politically, the whole issue of schools are considered much, much more important or get much more coverage. And the schools are obviously clearly very, very important. Mm. But I think in general in Ireland at the moment, our children are getting a very good education at primary and secondary level in general. It's not perfect, but in general they're being taught and, OK, class size is going to get smaller. But the truth is, I firmly believe that we are very badly letting down our students at third level, where universities are going down the rankings, where class sizes are absolutely off the scale. Mm. And we're going to have to uh, collectively, and we've all have tried to play our role in this, uh, put greater emphasis on third level in the political system. Now, what Michal Martin has suggested that we should do, uh, and he would, he, would, he would like to do this if we get into government, is have a separate department uh, for higher and further education. And I think that that would be very, very important because what it would mean is for the first time we wouldn't have a Minister for Education just coming out nine months after he's appointed mm. during the summer telling people, by the way, yesterday in the Irish Times, if you can't afford to live in Dublin or, or Cork or Galway and want to do medicine, don't do it. Just go to one of the, the, the institutes of technology where you can't do those subjects. Mm. Um, we, we wouldn't have that attitude. But we, what we, he has not been fighting the cause of third level. Well, he simply has not been. It's the reality of the situation. If you can't uh, afford it, you'll have to do something else because the government isn't in a position to uh, fund it, it would seem. And the minister says that is because he can't get uh, sufficient support in the doll. On the other hand, he's also... He hasn't asked me for uh, uh, OK, but uh, on the other hand, he's also saying that he's going to freeze student fees uh, and uh, that leaves us with this situation where the universities are struggling to pay for the services that they provide. Uh, Perhaps one of the measures they've taken is uh, the increase in the cost uh, of accommodation and perhaps they'll get through this year but they'll have to look at next year. And what will they do then? Will they increase uh, the points uh, that students need to do courses in order to bring down class sizes? And should students uh, look at these other options that are available to them if that is the result? Well, of course, students should look at all options that are available to them in all of the universities and institutes of technology in the country. But I think what the minister was saying yesterday was that if you can't afford housing mm. in the big cities, then go to one of the institutes of technology. And that's no good if you want to be a teacher, if you want to be a doctor, uh, or if you want, there are certain other uh, subjects that are not taught in institutes of technology. I think that's a very snobby attitude, I think, that's typical uh, from Fine Gael. Third level should be available to absolutely everybody. That's the vision uh, that Fianna Fáil had uh, when Patrick Hillary brought in the institutes of technology. Um, when we got guidance counselling restored, we give when we restored the third level postgraduate yeah. grant, those things that help everybody achieve uh, their potential. And we've got to do that. And Is we it time for an election? I mean, if we can't fund our third level institutions, uh, surely we have to do whatever it takes in order to do that if the Minister says well, that requires an election look, is it not time for an election? There's, there's going to be an election probably I would say almost certainly within the next year there's going to be an election sometime before the summer uh, I think all, it will be incumbent on all parties uh, to put their best foot forward and put their policies down there in terms of what's required for third level um, at the last general election we had a manifesto commitment for an extra hundred Why don't you round. call for an election if you believe in because what you're saying 
uh, because, as I said to you earlier on, this government has the support of Fianna Fáil. Its policy on funding third level has the support of Fianna Fáil through abstaining in the budget. In the same way, Water Charges has the support of Fianna Fáil, Maria Bailey has the support of Fianna Fáil, Broadband has the support of Fianna Fáil, and we could go on forever uh, and a day about the Children's Hospital and so on, never mind housing. But if this is so important, why don't you say we need an election? Look, uh, the truth is, we're not in government. We don't support the government. We're in a conflict supply agreement, and the reasons for so that, I think, are important. well known. I've been well rehearsed by. So it's by, not know, important Martin. enough. It is clearly critically important, but not important we, enough. You've, you've heard what my party leader has said uh, last December about the issues related to Brexit. It's not, the, there's going to, there's going to be no decision. People were critical of what Michal There's Martin going to be no decision about. made on funding third-level institutions. That's what the Minister has said well, look, until well, after general election, and you're saying, grant. Well, let's be honest. If there's a no-deal Brexit in October, we're in much more serious trouble than no, even... I don't, I, don't think, I, don't, I, I don't think that's going to happen based on what Philip Hammond has said uh, in his well, article Philip in Hammond the Times. Is, well, he's not in power anymore. And that's ah, the yes. We well, well, is he not? Is he not? Boris has a working majority of one, and if he loses Philip Hammond and those who go with him, uh, I think he may be actually in power. But anyway... Anyway, Fianna Fáil always ducks awkward questions by mentioning Brexit. Uh, is it right Sorry. to say... Yeah? Sorry, I think Michal Martin showed incredible vision last December when Maybe he made the so. decision that he took because a lot of people were saying that he was off the wall and this wasn't going to happen, etc. And we've had incredible uncertainty in the country uh, over the last year and we're mm. trying to keep things steady. Uh, we would rather be in power. And I think what, what... And this has been a learning curve for everybody. It has been a learning curve for us. But you don't and want to fund third-level education. We do, but what No, you don't, is, because the minister has said it won't happen until well, after a general election. You're saying grand. Well, I, 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 I certainly... I, if, the, if the government wants to talk to me about third-level funding, I'm always available. No, well, they don't they believe. Blamed, they have blamed the Dáil majority uh, on, yeah. on, on things, but then when things go right, they, and you've said grand, they have got they you've, have got you, serious. You've said that's fine. Through. You've no problem with that, except just to say, oh, they're terrible. They've abdicated their responsibility. No, no, I, I, they're I, I, they're well, a sorry, disgrace. Uh, was, the strongest possible terms and so on. But grand is essentially what you're saying. No, what I'm saying is that the government Finnegale have got through significant legislation that they were not able to get through with the government with the greatest majority in the mm. history of the state in the last government. So they weren't able to get technological universities through. They weren't able to get the baptism uh, barrier through. There are other legislation that they weren't able to get through. And what happened in those cases was they came to me and said, what do you want? What do you need to change? What should we do here? Uh, will you support this legislation? And we did get changes. Uh, that that we were happy with, and we we managed to work uh, collectively to get those pieces of legislation through, which has led, for example, uh, to the creation of the Technological University of Dublin, which is going to benefit a huge amount of Mead students who are who are going there, who are going to get a better, uh, you know, a, 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 a better uh, university in this area, including in Blanchestown. Um, they've been able to get those things through because they asked to talk to us. They have not asked to talk to us about third level, and we have set out what we believe should be our vision for third level, which is first and foremost more. Uh, funding from the state, which is to have a separate cabinet minister for higher education so that we're not hearing from the Minister for Education once a year about third level. That's the reality. He, there needs to be a minister at the cabinet table who's fighting for funding, who's going there to the government saying, I want a share of the pie for third level. And that's not happening at the moment okay. uh, in the Department of Education. Got to leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining Thank us you. this morning. Thomas Byrne is a TD in Meath East and Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, with uh, the harvesting season underway, farmers are particularly busy, uh, but uh, they're being asked to take a minute to do one simple thing which could literally save their life or the life of somebody else on their farm. And we're joined by Mark Cullen, Assistant Chief Executive with uh, the HSA, the Health and Safety Authority. Good morning to you, Mark, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, The focus here is on tractors in particular and the statistics are shocking. 61 people have died on tractors or in accidents relating to tractors over the course of the last decade. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Yes, the, the statistics are shocking. 61 deaths in the last 10 years. And of that, uh, 28 of those were to elderly farmers, 65 and above, and six were in, involved children. So the, the, the statistics are fairly grim, and that's why the Health and Safety Authority have put a focus, a specific focus on tractors, and we launched our essential tractor safety checks in conjunction with Road Safety Authority and Angarashi Akana at the Tullamore Agriculture Show on Sunday, which gives... A number of tips and areas that farmers should look out uh, for once uh, they're using tractors on the farm. As we know, tractors mm. are the workhorse of the farm, so there are several things that they need to do. And as you have said, it just takes a little time out just to do those checks, and they can be invaluable and save lives. And in particular, to protect the young and the elderly who are at most at risk uh, because more of uh, the people in those cohorts have lost their lives over the course of uh, the last decade. And this leaflet, uh, which uh, advises on uh, the checks to make on tractor safety, uh, I gather uh, to a large degree is the kind of thing that people would know. For example, if somebody is driving a car, they should know that they have their seatbelt on. But this focuses minds to some degree as well. It does. It makes it makes common sense, but you know, sometimes in the, in, in, in one's farmers are so busy and they can mm. be distracted by many things. It's very important just to keep that focus. And this essential tractor safety checks and uh, 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 leaflet gives them the, the the whereabouts to look at very specific areas and have a quick check on that. And I suppose the key message here is just to make sure that the tractors are kept in good, serviceable, and roadworthy conditions. And in particularly the handbrakes and brakes applied correctly and are working correctly. It's very, very simple. But there are lots of other checks there, which includes checks that need to be done for when it's working on the farm, but also once it's on the road. Mm. And if on the road, uh, there are, of course, other road users and you're appealing to the other road users to watch out for tractors because farmers are so busy at this time of the year. That's right, Michael. Yeah, once it, you know it's a very busy period. There's lots of tractors. There's a, there's lots of uh, movement between farms and uh, out farms. So yeah, tractors are on the road. They, they are slower. They do have loads. So other road users need to be aware of that. We do ask the drivers of the tractor to uh, adhere to the the, the road. Uh, conditions and legislation but also other drivers around that have a responsibility to act responsible and be mindful that these pieces of machinery do go slow and they have to take the necessary precautions when uh, approaching or overtaking the piece of uh, the tractors and trailers. And it's not just uh, that they might frustrate you and it might uh, be dangerous to overtake uh, but you could come around a bend as well I gather to the surprise of a slow moving vehicle. Well, that's it. You have always been aware. You, you know, the, we ask road users to drive to the road conditions and also be also be aware that there could be uh, slow move, moving vehicles in front of them once they come around the bend and they take the appropriate measures and drive safely once they're doing that. 
Okay, well, uh, it uh, comes with uh, the time of the year and as you say, uh, your leaflet is available to people and you're asking farmers in particular to take a minute to read the Health and Safety Authority's Essential Tractor Safety Checks Leaflet. Thank you indeed, Mark, for joining us this morning. Mark Cullen is uh, the Assistant Chief Executive of the HSA. Now, it is Wednesday morning, so the local newspapers are available to you in the news agents. We have them in front of us here this morning. Marie Kearns is here with the front pages and we begin in County Meath this week with the Meath Chronicle and the grief that has been expressed because of the loss of young Mikey Letty. That's right Michael and that is reflected on the uh, in the Chronicle which uh, features uh, details about the talented teenager on page one and then a two page spread inside Johnstown Golden's Boy is the headline on the story and Anne Casey's reporting from the funeral and how Mickey's broad smile, his joy in life and his immense footballing talent were remembered as school friends, clubmates and friends joined his dev- devastated family yesterday at the funeral mass where a guard of honour was provided by Navin O'Mahony's and Johnstown FC. OK, the Draw It Independent then. That's reporting on how the President is one of many of thousands of people who've uh, taken the time to visit Drogheda this week. That's right, Michael, and it really is a gem of a picture on the front page capturing the President, Michael D. Higgins, donating to two buskers on the streets of Drogheda when he walked around and chatted to people after officially launching the plan. I'm sure that's a picture that they'll be keeping for some time to come, Michael. Also on page one, the paper has a story about plans for 270 apartments and a number of commercial units at Scotch Hall. OK, I take it it's uh, the beautiful dresses in Dundalk uh, that uh, feature on the front page of the Argus. Yes, it's the Deb season, Michael, if you didn't know. And uh, that's reflected on the front page of the Argus, which has a beautiful picture of eight girls attending the St Vincent Secondary School debutante ball in Dunboyne Castle with the appropriate strap line, Here Come the Girls. The Argus and all the other Dundalk papers, Michael, are leading with the story about the court appearance of the 30-year-old man in connection with that alleged stabbing of a 93-year-old man at his home in Blackrock on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, as you say, the uh, attack on that 93-year-old man makes for the lead story on uh, the front page of uh, the Dundalk Democrat. That's right. Man refused bail is the heading on the story there. On page two, Michael, uh, the paper's reporting about the death of Anne Delcassian, the sister of murdered Dundalk woman Irene White, who died last Friday night. And Tia Clark is reporting that Anne's lawyer, Kevin Winters, has vowed now to work to honour her dying wish to put all those involved in her sister's death behind bars. No surprise, uh, the shock of uh, the vicious attack on uh, that elderly man makes for the lead in the Dundalk Leader. That's on its front page uh, this week. Uh, But you've uh, been looking at a a fundraising story inside. That's right. A good news story, I suppose, to counteract what's on the front page. And that focuses on the fundraising efforts of a Dramiskin lady, Amy Woods, who raised a magnificent total of €11,000 for the Irish Motor Euro. Own disease association. So well done to her. Yeah, well done indeed. Uh, and I'm sure 
uh, that will be much appreciated. Uh, a wonderful charity as well. Thanks uh, for that, Marie. Perhaps uh, people want to comment on some of those stories, uh, some interesting stories, as always, on the front pages of uh, the local papers uh, this week. Perhaps uh, there's something else you've been hearing that you'd like to make comment on. Or if there is an issue that you'd like to raise with us, uh, do please get in touch because you'll be back in a, a few minutes' time, Marie, indeed. with some of the comments, if we get any comments. Our telephone number is... They're 80. coming in already, Michael. <laughs> OK, well, I'm glad to hear that. We're not talking to ourselves. Our telephone number is 1857 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 15-year-old Nora Ann Quarren, who had suffered learning difficulties, was reported missing on uh, the 4th of August after her family arrived at uh, the Doosan Rainforest Resort in Seremban, about 70 kilometres south of uh, the Malaysian capital of Kuala Lumpur. Yesterday, a 10-day search concluded with uh, the discovery of her unclothed body. Police say a criminal investigation into the disappearance has begun, although an initial investigation revealed no evidence of criminal behaviour. The results of an autopsy carried out this morning will determine Nora's cause of death. The family say the loss of Nora is unbearable. Condolences have been expressed to them by President Michael D. Higgins and Taoiseach Leo Vradker. Patricia Casey is a consultant psychiatrist at the Matter Hospital and Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at UCT and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Patricia, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Good morning to you, Michael. Uh, Is it possible uh, to uh, contemplate what the family are going through at the moment? Sadly, it isn't. Uh, My heart goes out to them 100%. I cannot imagine what they must be going through to lose a child in any circumstances is incredibly difficult to lose a younger child particularly a 14 15 year old child with a learning difficulty is immeasurably even more traumatic than than any of us can can imagine so um, i just i just can't imagine what they're going through i wouldn't even begin to to speculate uh, and well, the results of the post-mortem help uh, if they have an understanding of how she died or why she died as a result of that, uh, or will it make things worse, or has it the, the, the prospect of making things worse? Well, it's, 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 it's relative, really. If they don't know, you know, not knowing in any circumstances is very difficult. But then when you learn the truth, and, and you think and contemplate what might have happened um, and you mull over it and rehearse what you learn has happened, that too carries its own difficulties and problems. I think on balance, it's, it's best to know um, whether, whether the death occurred mm. of, of Punora occurred just accidentally because maybe she, she she left thinking she was going to a waterfall. There was some, I saw some reports that she was looking forward to seeing a waterfall. Nice. So whether whether it was something that occurred just because she left and got lost or whether mm. there's a more sinister reason. Um, if there's a sinister reason, of course the parents will, will think about it and contemplate what she must have gone through. So there's all of that. But I think on mm. balance it probably is best to know rather than to spend your life um, worrying and, and, and being uncertain. Is it better to 
have a, a body and uh, the ability to uh, have a Christian burial if uh, that's the wishes of uh, the family. Uh, I mean, the last, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, this seems very morbid, I, I know, but uh, the last time we've had a, a story like this was Madeleine McCann back in 2007 and uh, her uh, whereabouts remains unknown, uh, which leaves a vacuum for the family, I suppose. Yes, there is undoubt. It is undoubtedly true that that fa- having the, the remains of the of the person and being able to to bury them um, and to say goodbye to them through that process through the ritual of burial, whether it's a Christian burial or a, a secular one, but to be able to go through some kind of ritual is hugely important. There's absolutely no doubt uh, about that. But, you know, again, these things are all relative and the, the loss of this, this, this girl will remain with them for, forever. What about our interest in all of this? The kind of questions I'm asking you this morning, uh, the kind of things I'm wondering, the conversations people generally are having uh, across the world, it would seem, the interest in what happened to little Nora uh, could be described as uh, being very dark uh, and uh, a a little bit uh, sinister, uh, being so interested in something so terrible. Or is it just human to feel that way and to be that interested? I think it's human to be that way. I mean, some people might say, as you suggest, that it is morbid and it is uh, prurient. Uh, but I think that uh, people are interested in it because they they gener- genuinely feel for the family. But also, every parent will be able to, in some sense, enter the world of the parents at this point because they, to every parent, fears the loss of a child. Uh, the kidnapping of a child or something in, of that sort like Madeleine McCann or like Jamie Bulger a number of years earlier and, and these stories remain in people's minds because they touch them in a very personal way and people are there fretting about their own children mm. and I think are speculating in the hope that maybe there's an explanation for it so that the same won't happen to their children. It's almost a safeguard. Thinking about it and talking about it is almost a safeguard that they won't experience the same thing. And so I have some sympathy um, with the interest that the public has in this. I think it, it's, it's an interest that's born of love and fear rather than just inquisitiveness. And an empathy that we have with how the family must be feeling to lose such a a young person under such questionable circumstances. But concern, as you say, as well, about our own children and how uh, we might protect them and what child protection measures we should take at all times. Uh, But uh, when... You're on holiday like this uh, and we've heard the reports of how Nora was excited and looking forward to this holiday and it did seem like an exotic part of the world to be visiting uh, as would have been the case in the Algarve uh, where Madeleine McCann was uh, but to lose somebody like that and the mystery of it all uh, really does put parents on alert. Uh, Is there a risk that we can become too concerned for our children and be overprotective of them? Of course there is, um, but, you know, in, in this instance, there's no suggestion of this. I mean, mm. Nora was sleeping. She wasn't sleeping in the same room as her parents, for example. She was, I think, sleeping with her brother and sister um, in the same room as them, according to some report that I saw. Um, and that seems 
natural, you know, ch- children of that age when they're on holidays do sleep with their 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 siblings. Um, it's not on the on the other hand as though the parents were were neglectful. I mean, she wasn't out late at night, you know, going to a disco and just not returning. I mean, she was at home in bed asleep and just disappeared in 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 the mysterious way that we've heard about. So I don't think there is any suggestion that the parents were either over or underprotective. A, a child with a learning disability, obviously there will be some extra precautions taken in these circumstances. Um, you know, for, for example, not letting a 15, 14, 15, 16 year old girl out who has a learning disability, you wouldn't let them out on their own mm. um, and such like. But but you know, I think most parents are sensible in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't, we can't lock our children up. Um, you know, we can't be with them 24-7. Um, but sadly, um, terrible things do happen, um, whether by chance or through some malevolent force, who knows, but, mm-hmm. you know, um Terrible things on rare occasions do happen, and sadly, Nora and her family um, are caught up in in one such instance on this occasion. And we think of a a number of parents who we know of uh, from the news that are are grieving children this morning. Undoubtedly, there's many more listening to us uh, who've lost a a child relatively recently. But in very recent times, there was the boy who overdosed uh, taking tablets at that independence concert. Uh, There's the young girl who died at a Deb's ball before her leaving search results. Uh, There's Mikey Letty, a young 15-year-old in an avenue fell from a wall in Lanzarote, the little uh, toddler from Cork uh, who uh, was found in a swimming pool. And I take it that there's commonality in terms of the grief that all of the parents of all of these children feel because the most natural thing in the world is for the parent to pass away before the child does. It is unnatural, is it not, for the child to die first? Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why why losing a child at any time is is so difficult for for parents because the timeline isn't right, so to speak. Losing, you know, losing somebody at any age always causes causes grief. But when the when the timeline is um, isn't right, when it's premature, as it were, when the child dies before the parent, that's incredibly difficult. And then when the death is unexpected, when it's 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 sudden. And not foreseen, not because of illness or anything, but it just it just happens out of the blue through through the you know like the incidents you you've mm. outlined mm. there, Mike. It's all the more difficult. And again, when it's a vulnerable child, it's more difficult again. So there are, there are gradations, if that's the correct word. Mm. There are some differences in 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 grief in all of these situations. They're all very powerful and very potent. But I think losing a child through disappearance um and and so suddenly is and, and, and is is just the most the, the most terrible okay. but you know one of the things that when people are grieving think they, they think that, that, that it could be worse it could be much worse and you know i'm i'm not for one moment suggesting that about the the the, the the core and family and what they are thinking but it may be what they are thinking or in due course what they will come to think and that can be part of healing the grief as well uh, seeing that you know there are others who are even in more difficult 
circumstances uh, and and so it goes um and that's that's one of the mechanisms that people use when they when they are grieving they compare themselves to others and they put their own grief into perspective with the passage of time but mm. it's not easy and it doesn't happen quickly no or, or otherwise uh, i suppose you'd wonder what it's all about or or, or why uh, uh, do we exist? Patricia, we leave it there. Price you pay for yeah. love, let's put it like that. Grief is the price you pay for, for intense love. Okay, Patricia, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, to comment on uh, that uh, for us uh, this morning because it is a story that I think we're all grappling with. Patricia Casey, consultant psychiatrist at the Matter Hospital and Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at UCT. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning again, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Um, read the discussion on third level funding. Susan phoned in and wonders about the pay salaries of lecturers. She thinks it must be the handiest job around. Teachers in second level get a lot of flack, but those in universities and colleges just seem to go in, teach and then go. Not the same level of assistance given to students. Tim from Dundalk. If Thomas Byrne thinks that the Minister for Education is doing such a bad job and not giving enough funding to third level institutions, then he knows what he and his party needs to do. Pull the plug on the government, Thomas. You can't have it both ways, propping them up on one hand and complaining about their policies on the other. Ah, Brexit, Brexit. Sandra says that Thomas Byrne is right that there needs to be investment in our third level colleges and universities so that our students can get the best education possible. Not good to see our institutions sliding down the scales. We have had a very good reputation both nationally and internationally and we need to keep that. Okay. Listening to your discussion on third level funding, says Mary, and something needs to be done to help parents pay for accommodation costs Mm. for children, especially as they have risen so substantially. It's not fair on those students who work so hard to get a place in college. The results came out yesterday. There are some, Michael, who won't be able to take up their offers because their parents can't afford to pay for accommodation. Yeah. Well, that's a point that was put to the Minister yesterday and uh, he made some interesting comments, or at least there's been some interest in what he had to say. He said, use your grant to pay for the accommodation or don't go. Go to one of uh, the regional institutes of education rather than going to university. Mary says that families... Uh, don't uh, many families don't get a grant and she says because they are just above the threshold it doesn't mean that they're on big incomes they're just maybe outside Mm. of it and they still have to fork out Mm. and particularly hard if there's more than one in the family that's Mm. at college yeah it's the problem with anything that's means tested and when there's a threshold in place people will always fall just below it uh, the amount Neve texted in the amount of students that are taking drugs, drinking, and smoking in schools. Surely this topic is more important than education itself. This subject has been brushed under the carpet because it might offend listeners. But parents need to be educated along with their children and not kept silent on something that's more important than 
education. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Neve. Uh, let's uh, go uh, to uh, Drogheda, where the fla is underway, and uh, people are, are being warned about some counterfeit notes uh, that are in circulation. Garda Nessa Durkin is in Drogheda Garda Station and uh, on the line. And a very good morning to you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, there's a warning here about ten and twenty euro notes. Is that right? Yes. Good morning, Michael. That's that's uh, what's happened. We've had a couple of complaints regarding counterfeit or fake notes um, that have been passed during the FLA. So we thought that we could pass on some advice to those members of the public who may be attending this week. So there are, I suppose, four things that you... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You can check when you're taking in notes. Um, so the first one is feel. If you feel the note, um, you can feel there's raised printing on the genuine notes. So, you know, when you rub your thumb across, you'll feel... Um, a raised uh, print. Um, this is along the sides of the small notes, the 5, 10 and 20 notes. Now the note should also be crisp and firm. Okay. If you look at the note against a bright source, light source, the denomination, so the number of the note is on that top left hand corner and should be perfectly formed. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you tilt the note, the colour is clear on the note as you look straight on, but it changes then depending on which note you have when you tilt it. Mm. And then the last one is check it. You can see the security thread. It's embedded in a genuine note. Okay, again, if it's held up against a bright light, you can see the watermark and the security thread on the note. The watermark is visible from the front and the back on all of these genuine notes. Mm. Um, and because the fly is on, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of money changing hands. Are you advising retailers to check these notes because these are fairly small denominations? Yeah, well, we're you know we we really don't want um, anything to happen on in the fly that brings it into disrepute or any mm. problems that people will have. So I suppose it is important that people will check it. Um, and you can also check any of these um, notes or any of these um, points on the official ECB website, which is the Euro Our Money. 
Okay, thank you indeed for that, Gardenessa Durkin, speaking to us there from Drogheda Garda Station. Let's go back uh, to some more of uh, those calls. What else have you got for you us, You mentioned Marie? Brexit, Michael. Mm. We had a text in from a listener. While Michael Reid is one of the best journalists, albeit nakedly left-wing biased, his reliance on treacherous remoners like Philip Hammond stopping Brexit is mistaken. Dozens of Corburns and anti-EU extreme left Labour MPs who want the UK's railways and water infrastructure renationalised and to know that being in the EU prevents that renationalisation will mm. hold their noses and vote for Boris's no deal. Well, uh, well they may do, but uh, that may not be enough. Uh, and Philip Hammond, uh, who used to live next door to Theresa May as a Chancellor of uh, the Exchequer, he lived in number 11 Downing Street, uh, Downing Street one of the most powerful men uh, in recent times in the United Kingdom is saying that a no deal would be a betrayal of what people voted for Mm -hmm. and he has written a remarkable article in the Times newspaper uh, this morning uh, where he says he wants to bust two great myths one is uh, to reject a no deal is to somehow uh, uh, reject the will of uh, the British people and Mm -hmm. he says the reason for that is quite simple because the British people voted to leave the European Union on the basis that they would do a deal with Europe and that it would be easy to do a deal with Europe and to pretend now that a hard no deal Brexit is not uh, what uh, they had or is what they had voted for is a total travesty of uh, the truth and he said uh, then as well that no deal would be a betrayal of the referendum result and that it must not happen. He gave a, a follow-up interview then this morning uh, to BBC Radio 4 and there is this threat that he will vote against Boris Johnson. Now Boris Johnson has a working majority of one Mm-hmm. Philip Hammond is one uh, and he is saying that Boris Johnson is not going to leave against the expressed wishes of the House of Commons and that there are ways uh, that the MPs can stop him from doing that. So uh, this uh, really has opened up a can of worms today. Yes, Michael. So you could be right after all in your predictions. Yeah, the first time I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> first time for everything. Yep. No, well you have been saying all along you didn't think it would happen and nobody knows what's going to happen so it's always interesting to see but this is a major development. Um, moving from that, can I, to mm-hmm. tractor safety. Uh, John from Navin. Uh, what about lights on tractors? 9pm at night met a tractor with no light. Where is the safety there, Michael? Says John. Mm. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right. Paul says, drives me mad when tractors are going so slow on a main road. They stay out in the middle of the road, won't move in so that you can pass safely. Well, that drives me mad as well. But it has to be said that not all tractors do that. And quite often they'll pull in when there's a chance to do so and allow a line of traffic to get past them and then take off again. Some of them do, some of them don't. It drives us mad when they don't, but not all of them do. Well, I had a good instance where it happened to me there just Mm -hmm. recently. I was behind one and as soon as they got a bit of space thank God they pulled in. Yeah. Because you, you always feel bad when you're the one directly behind and there's a mm. line of traffic behind you. Yeah. Well, when they don't, they're wrong. Uh, and that's that. But two wrongs don't make a right. No, and that doesn't mean not. that you should be taking, uh, going overtaking uh, carelessly no. and uh, putting other people at risk. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there, Michael. Uh, moving then just to antisocial behaviour, and we were discussing that yesterday in relation to the incident on West Street. 
in Drogheda. Uh, Tom says he feels sorry for the Gardaí uh, having to deal with out-of-control children. It needs to be tackled immediately. It's also not very nice for those children who are looking on watching that kind of activity. Mm, or anybody else for that matter, uh, whether there are people from the town or visitors to the town. It sounded like it was very close to a riot. Uh, this is what happened on Friday night where a group of about 80 youngsters uh, were allegedly attending an 18th birthday party. At least they had booked a function room suggesting that they were going to hold an 18th birthday party. It didn't turn out to be the case. They had a, a fight or there were several fights and they were all thrown out uh, and that went out onto the streets and uh, then they started to second the guardie who came to police it. Olive from Delique took time to email the show yesterday, Michael, just to mm. say that she had volunteered the day before for the flower with a group of youths from 15 to 17 years of age. I was very impressed, Michael, with their approach to life. They were a breath of fresh air and I want to thank them and wish them well in the future and not to worry about the exam results. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, well worth recognising uh, young people like that. But it has to be said, the vast majority of young people are great people and are very well behaved and good citizens and so on. Uh, it's uh, like any age group. Uh, there's always a, a small few, but when a small few act like the way those kids did the other night, well, it leads to mayhem. It does. Mm. And, it, and, it, and it's not nice to watch or to witness for anybody that was present. It's very dangerous. I mean, they yes. were kicking the head off that guard in the Shocking. middle of the street, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right, Michael. Thank Thanks you. for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. If you would like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, the Irish Examiner reported yesterday uh, that learner drivers are to be encouraged uh, through an official campaign uh, which is about uh, to be launched to sit their driving test and uh, there's many good reasons to that it would seem and it would seem as though there's many people who are driving on a learner permit. Let's talk about this with Tony Toner, training director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Good morning to you Tony and uh, thanks for joining morning, us. Michael. Over 240,000 people in this country have a, a learner permit. I suppose that's one thing. Uh, but uh, the amount of permits uh, that people have had is another thing and in some circumstances quite shocking. Uh, there's 6,737 people who drive in this country who are on their 11th permit or more uh, as the case may be according to this article in uh, the Irish Examiner yesterday. Are you shocked by that? Uh, not really. No. no. Are you surprised no. by it? Not really. Not mildly? No. So, 11th, uh, ele- no, um, 11th the permit? Yeah, Michael, hmm. the important thing about it is that the driving test here has has been built up to be such a traumatic time for people that uh, it's daunting, it's prohibitive, uh, it doesn't invite people to get it. The challenge of, of driving is, uh, any of us that are out there driving, is absolutely, it's an everyday thing we, we do. Whether you're blasé about it or otherwise, it is the most responsible thing you'll do on a day-to-day basis. It is the most dangerous thing you'll do on a day-to-day basis. Mm. you get into something that's a tonne plus, that travels at the road speed as applicable, but um, to take charge of that and to make all the judgments, all the assessments, all the anticipation necessary, it um, it involves a huge amount of mental preparation and physical attention. Um, and there's rules to the game then. These rules of the road, as, as, as people have to study, 
uh, as part of that theory test preparation. Mm. But there is massive pressure on people uh, to test, to test, to test. And the, the nature of things today is that people tend to highlight the fact that they're doing the test in a week or two weeks or three weeks. And that puts further pressure on because well-meaning family members and people in their social group can say, oh, best to look at the test this morning, or you'll do our blah, And that puts pressure on them because fear of failure is, is, is there with every one of us at the time of doing our driving test. Mm. Uh, if you get a, a, a learner permit, uh, it's valid for two years. If you get mm. a second learner permit, it's valid for two years. Uh, so you're already up to four years. Uh, if you're on your 11th permit, because uh, after that it's a, a year per permit, if you're on your 11th permit, what are you on there in about 13 years driving? Well, you can imagine, dare I say it, the elephant there pushing up the stairs every time they think about the driving test. It is absolutely... 13 years thinking about it, though. <laughs> My God, there's probably a master's degree in this, in, 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 in research of uh, why this is happening and all that. And the simple thing about it is the driving test, uh, some 60,000 people are going on the RAS last night uh, across Ireland having got their leaving cert results. The next thing they're going to want to do if they haven't already done it is get a learner permit and go and get uh, their EDT, their essential driver training, mm. uh, with their ADI and get their go seeking to get a driving uh, license. Yeah, but you're telling because, you're telling us that they'll they'll get a learner permit when they're eighteen, and when they're thirty, they'll be saying, "Oh, I should do my driving test." That's crazy, isn't it? Well, you know, some of this is legacy issues from before uh, as well. And as I say, if people uh, they, they, they have, as I said, this mental block, Michael, regarding mm. the test. And uh, if, if you talk to anything doing it, and these are competent people in every other walk of life, mm. but when it comes to the driving test, they, you, you, you can see people shaking in their boots. Are they able to drive? Are they competent well, enough at driving to be on the roads? The simple fact about it, Michael, is their driving hasn't been adjudicated on by an examiner from the department and they haven't been given the same sort of competency that you hold and yet you get into your car and we assume when we're driving on the road that everybody has been adjudicated on and we're dealing with competent people out here in the mass of driving that uh, people have to do on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And when that isn't happening and there is 2.1, million vehicles on our road uh, on our roads, and there's a quarter of a million of those on learner permits. It's kind of dodgy. Well, you know, they it's don't more t- than dodgy, you know. Well, I, I suppose when you look at uh, the economics of it, uh, they're not very sensible, and they obviously have more money than sense uh, because uh, the Irish Examiner spoke uh, about yesterday, reported yesterday on uh, a woman uh, who's been driving for about ten years, a one point six liter engine, which is valued at six thousand euro, five year no claims bonus and no penalty points. She pays almost €1,200 Euro in insurance at the moment, and it would be about half that, 663 if she had a full licence. And the chances are, if you're talking to that person, they are gladly paying that because the thought of doing the test is terrifying. Mm. It, is, it is that traumatic for people. And something has to be done to 
uh, persuade people that the test is exactly that. Uh, the preparation for the test with their ADI is absolutely vital. Mm. Um, they're only getting 12 hours. 12 hours is a day and a half of a working week. And, uh, and that day and a half mm. does you until you're adjudicated on uh, 70 plus. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? You're, you're never adjudicated on again, Michael, unless a member of the guard that has occasion to pull you in over your road behaviour or something. Yeah, or, I mean, if you're, you're driving, or if you're driving unaccompanied uh, and then you're in real trouble. Well, uh, certainly, yeah, if you're yeah, driving yeah. unaccompanied mm-hmm. now, you're mm-hmm. looking for trouble. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we know there's people under pressure because of where mm-hmm. they live and the logistics to get in the college or to work. Mm-hmm. But you're going to get two points for driving unaccompanied. Um, you know, and they might take you, the car off you for that. They could take the car mm-hmm. off you because... And, uh, and you have to have mm-hmm. a qualified person beside you. That person has to have two years' experience with a full licence before they get to be Okay, well, they're going to use this kind of uh, common sense or economic sense, uh, how you could uh, spend half of what you're spending on insurance as an example to encourage people to take their tests. Uh, But surely the best thing to do would be to say to them, look, if you get a a learner permit, you can't get a second one until you do a driving test. If you fail that, then uh, you can't get a third one until you do a third test and so on. Well, effectively, that's it. That the the, the learner permit has a, a very definite life of its own, um, and and um, you must do the test. Uh, you must be adjudicated on. And um, what I think is happening is people are applying for the test and they're not showing up for the test. The amount of no shows here is 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 far greater than it would be for our counterparts in Northern Ireland. You know, and uh, you know, they, as I said here, the, the the job prospects, the the benefits of having a full license for a young person on their CV going for the job is is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I know of one young guy, and he did his driving test uh, here in, uh, and five days after, he was driving a Pontiac Automatic around Chicago on a full license. You know what I mean? That he yep. got from here. No, I am certainly not saying that he had the experience to deal with all of this. And um, well, what I know of him is that he did way more uh, driving in preparation for his test than just doing circuits of the test centre itself. And like, people should really get away from that. And when they're learning how to drive, let it be learning how to drive. Please don't learn how to pass the driving test. That's just a strategy. It's not preparing you for the real stuff that's outside. Okay, but it is a start, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, again, when when everybody's adjudicated on and everybody's holding a certain competency, Michael, like yourselves, and a full licence, uh, you know, everybody should be reassured outside that they're dealing with competent people. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Tony Toner, who's a training director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Now, let's uh, go back to Brexit and what Philip Hammond, uh, the former Chancellor, has been saying. uh, And I'll just read you a little bit from his article in uh, The Times today. He says, uh, the hardliners, this is the hardline Brexiters, may make the most noise, but they are not the most numerous. Most people in this country want to see us leave in a smooth and orderly fashion that will not disrupt lives, cost jobs or diminish living standards, whether they voted leave or remain in 2016. 
2016, Parliament faithfully reflects the view of that majority and it will make its voice heard. No deal, Philip Hammond says, would be a betrayal of the 2016 referendum result. It must not happen and he told the BBC today Boris Johnson must listen. Well, first of all, uh, the parliamentary arithmetic hasn't changed. So, in, in fact, it's, it's got slightly worse. Um, from the Prime Minister's point of view, so that Boris Johnson is in the same position that Theresa May uh, was in. Um, He has to listen to Parliament, and Parliament is clearly uh, opposed to a no-deal exit, and the Prime Minister uh, must respect that. And yet, this is a parliamentary democracy. Not only is Parliament opposed to an old deal exit, but Philip Hammond told BBC Radio 4's Today programme that the House can stop such a thing from happening. Yes, I'm very confident that the means exist for Parliament to make its voice heard uh, and to pass legislation that gives effect to the clear view of Parliament. Of course, um, the mechanisms being there doesn't necessarily and automatically deliver you The majority in a parliamentary democracy, um, everything depends on whether a majority of members of parliament are prepared to support something. But it's very clear to me, and I think the Speaker of the House of Commons has also been uh, very clear, that if a majority of members of parliament clearly wants uh, to go down a certain route a means will be delivered to allow that to happen. Okay, so it will happen if there is a majority. If it doesn't happen, despite what a majority feels, Philip Hammond says there'll be a crisis. Any idea of trying to bypass Parliament by dissolving it, for example, and and holding an election over the exit date would provoke uh, a constitutional crisis. We have an unwritten constitution, but the principles behind it are very clear, and one of them is that an outgoing government um, should not act in a way to prevent an incoming government from making uh, key decisions. Boris Johnson has a working majority of one in the House of Commons, including the support of the former Chancellor Philip Hammond, who is saying that he does not want to countenance a hard no-deal exit. And he told the BBC a solution must be found. Well, if we can't resolve this issue in Parliament, it will have to be resolved uh, by some form of democratic process. And there are frankly two choices, a general election uh, or a referendum. Now, it's, I, I don't have a particular view on that. That will be an issue for Parliament to decide in due course. Interesting, isn't it? An election or a referendum, uh, something has to be done. There needs to be a solution. This is the view of Philip Hammond, the former Chancellor of uh, the Exchequer, and it uh, will certainly be big news, particularly in the United Kingdom, where they are countenancing the idea of a hard, no-deal Brexit. Now, Philip Hammond told BBC Today uh, that whilst they may be more prepared for such a scenario now than they were before, there are significant consequences for such a move. Well, I don't think they can have it both ways. They can't say we failed to prepare Britain for a no-deal exit and we're moving rapidly into the well-prepared camp um, in three weeks. Um, A great deal of preparation has been done uh, and there is no doubt that some of the disruption that might have occurred uh, in the early days of a no-deal exit um, has been effectively um, mitigated. But um, preparing doesn't solve the longer-term problems. Um, Michael Gove is talking about uh, an intervention fund to buy lamb 
uh, and dispose of it because there will be no market for it. Now, that's probably a perfectly sensible thing to do in the first few months after a no-deal exit. But you can't be doing it five years later, ten years later. The uh, impact on the British economy of restructuring uh, to deal with the disruption to our patterns of trade and business that a no-deal exit would create will have a very negative impact on jobs, on prosperity and on some regions of the UK in particular. Some will hear that loud and clear, some may not. Philip Hammond has been making his views known by writing in the Times newspaper and speaking earlier this morning with BBC Radio 4's Today programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Immigrant Council of Ireland says we need to prepare ourselves in this country for the rise of xenophobia and racism. Let's hear why with Brian Cloran, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Brian, and thanks for joining us. Uh, is it not widespread as we speak? Um, well, good morning, Michael. Yes, I suppose we've been um, using the opportunity of last week we launched a, a national anti-racism campaign on public transport across the country with all the public transport providers to highlight the issue, essentially. So um, I suppose for many years as an organisation, we've been drawing attention to the fact that in Ireland we have very informal responses to the area of racism in Ireland. There used to be a national action plan against racism and mm. it expired back in 2008, so it's out of date by 11 years, essentially, that we haven't have a coordinated national approach to deal with the kind of the many manifestations where racism can come up in society everywhere from online to public transport to in communities you can imagine any walk of life and in any kind of circumstance racism can come up quite um, quite frequently um, so, so we're calling for a national action plan and we're also calling for the introduction of legislation in Ireland to allow us to properly gather and respond to racism in Ireland like the, the likes of hate crime legislation for example Right, uh, to tackle what we know uh, is happening already. Uh, I suppose one of the problems uh, that we face in relation uh, to this type of attitude is that quite often it is a type of attitude that leads uh, to the type of behaviour that you're concerned about, but attitudes don't always result in action uh, and aren't always visible nor audible. That's true. Uh, one of the things I suppose we're talking about in, in terms of a national action plan is that a lot of what happens is based on kind of misinformation or based in, on lack of information about the true reality of kind of what the migration situation in Ireland is like. So a lot of the time you'll hear people talking about, you know, migrants being disproportionately on social welfare or migrants being disproportionately committing crimes, all those kind of things that spread like wildfire but have very little basis in fact. There's no evidence of it at all if you look at the statistics, but but there's also no promotion of that kind of information. So there's two sides to a national action plan in, in our view. One is you need to you need to challenge these myths and challenge this information and make sure that people have the right information in front of them so that they can make a determination rather than making assumptions. And change that perception which with change that perception which leads to those attitudes. Exactly. There's so much in 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 racial attitudes there are hardened races. There are those that no matter what you say to them, whatever fact you present to them, they will present racial attitudes. But there's a middle ground as well whereby people may have vaguely anti-migrant sentiments because they've heard things and they've heard bits and pieces of information that don't have any kind of truth to it, you know. 
So I think a national action plan needs to deal with that, needs to deal with misbusting and disinformation. But the other side of it then is that we need to comprehensively respond to it. You know, what we're finding, I suppose, is that our responses in Ireland are very fragmented. You know, the guards have an approach, but it's not necessarily gathering any data. There's no real approach to what happens online around a lot of the things that are racially motivated. For example, if you look at local authorities and city city, uh, city councils across the country, mm. they're not gathering data on who, for example, in social housing is being subjected to racial racial incidents. It's not comprehensively gathered and analysed and, and put together. So we need to do all of that. But then again, as I say, we need to have the legislation and to back it up so that if something happens, the guards know what to do and there's, there's, a, there's a way of actually responding to it that makes sense, which is what we don't have at the moment. Right. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, if somebody is attacked, it's recorded by the Gardaí as an assault. But if it's a, an attack that is motivated because somebody has a problem with the other person's colour, race or creed, that it's uh, noted that it was a hate crime. They're, exactly. The guards are moving towards that. So so traditionally, as, as you very rightly said, there's there's been no approach around that necessarily. It's pretty much down to the individual discretion of the guard, whether or not they decide to record that there's some racist element, for example, to an attack on the street, if somebody gets assaulted. Now, they have changed the post system in the last couple of years to try and gather data on that a bit better, to give the guards the option of actually ticking a box that says this is racially motivated. But there's no good data coming back from that as of yet. It doesn't seem to be consistent used across the police force at all which means essentially then again you're not getting good data you're not getting good records like the type of stuff that we would be interested in looking at and there's very good academics have described this kind of process is when you look at other jurisdictions and you hear about things like anti uh, sorry uh, racially motivated anti-social behaviour kind of measures Mm. so we have anti-social behaviour measures in Ireland but we don't have racially motivated anti-social behaviour measures so the type of stuff that happens where you see somebody racially abusing somebody on a bus you know you see the videos on Twitter and all that kind of stuff Mm. that would qualify as a racially motivated antisocial behaviour issue in another country like the UK but here we we don't have that strand we don't have that category you know Mm. and that's the type of thing we need so we need more more ways to gather these type of things because then if you can actually say the extent of the problem to a, more, a greater degree of clarity then you can figure out what responses are necessary and it sends out a really strong mm. message again like the campaign we launched last week that these kind of things are not are you, you won't be treated with impunity you may be free to say it but you're not free from the consequences Okay and what consequence should there be for abuse of that sort for verbal abuse? Well I think it, it it's it's well laid out in, in the if you look at the, the jurisdictions around it, like I say, like mm. the UK for example, it's not that there is any additional punitive measure. Now in some instances people talk about things like aggravated sentencing, like so you get a, a longer sentence if there's an issue where somebody something has been racially racially motivated. And I think that the consensus is split on that in Ireland as to whether or not that's a good approach. You mm. know, for example, us as an organization, I wouldn't or we wouldn't necessarily be advocating that somebody should be spending longer in prison because of these things. Anybody locked up longer is not a good thing for society. You know, prison's not a good place mm-hmm. to have somebody and you need things like restorative justice. So if something's racially motivated and it's tagged from the start as being racially motivated and the criminal justice system says, right, we need to look at something like restorative justice that actually tries to look at this person's attitudes and analyse them and puts them in front of the person that they're racially motivated and has some kind of opportunity for um, a learning to come out of it. It's not just punitive measures, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's it. We, 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 we all really need, important. but that, that, that's at the root of it, isn't it? We all need to, to learn. Uh, I think 
uh, like any form of uh, discrimination, racism or xenophobia is rooted in fear and that we don't know who these people are or what threat they pose to us if we feel that way. And uh, quite often you'll hear people pitting people against people and they'll say, well, why are we bringing all of these people into this country when we have our own problems here? We have people who have no houses and are on the streets or the health services, what it is and so on. Uh, But uh, it's that thing of, well, two wrongs don't make a right and people are here for many reasons and uh, there's problems with people generally and there's good with people generally. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, I think I said it, I said it in, in an article in the examiner earlier in the week, like racism tries to dehumanize somebody. It tries to basically say, you're not that individual person. You're part of this generic group that we've identified as for some reason being problematic, whether it's people who are, you know, Muslim or people who are from uh, certain countries or whatever it may be. Um, but actually then when you, when you boil it down and you talk to people, and you say, well, no, the family next door to me that are Polish, they're fine, they're great, you know, they're they're, they're doing fantastic work. Or the African family across the green, they're brilliant, their kids mm. stay with my kids. But migrants in general or asylum seekers in general are problematic. Mm. So I think it, it's moving it from the perception of these kind of uh, faceless groups to a certain extent down to the personal experience of what, what people, you know, what people experience day to day in their in their schools and in, in communities and in, and in work, um, that actually migration is part of the fabric of Irish society now and it's been on the vast 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 majority positive you'll always have Mm. problems you'll always have issues that come up and they don't come up because a person's a migrant they come up because unfortunately issues just come up sometimes you know Um, and I think I think that's what it is it's about humanising and it's about saying that this person is not this person that's sitting across from me for example on public transport does not deserve to be treated any differently from me just because they're wearing a hijab or just because they've got different skin colour and most of us 99.9% of us would agree with that sentiment and that's what we need to harness that's what we need to say this is the, this is the bar. This is the bar we have in society, and the one we want to hold. Yeah, and it's not just immigrants who face this type of abuse because people have been coming to this country for a long period of time, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years uh, and more in some circumstances. And I was reading another article in the Irish Examiner uh, this week uh, and a woman uh, talking about how she's often abused because of how she looks, uh, because uh, she doesn't look like a a white Irish person, if you like. Uh, People would say to her, look, my taxes paid for your upbringing, your education, and uh, you should be thankful to me and everything I've done. Uh, But she was born in the Rotunda. Her mother moved here in the 1970s, and now she's a councillor for the Green Party, Hazel Chu in Dublin. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting watching um, the reaction to, to, to Hazel Chu in particular, and Hazel has been an absolute, you know, firebrand in terms of her response to it. She has She has responded, you know, very graciously and very, um, I think, clearly in her own articulation of, of the reality of like, I am Irish. I was born here. I grew up here. I might look different from yourself, but I'm as Irish as the next person over. And, and I, I think it, it really, it's really important that anyone from a migrant background, whether or not they're, they're a child growing up in the country that's just arrived here, whether or not they're a, a second generation migrant or like, like Hazel, um, that they see somebody going into a position like that 
Um, and the fact that they receive such negative treatment, that needs to be properly responded, not just by the person themselves, but it also needs to be kind of something that we as a society push back on and say, you know, I don't accept the fact, I don't accept that analysis that Hazel is any less Irish than me, you know, that she's the exact same Irish, I am Irish, you know, and that's the reality and that's going to be the reality going forward. Um, so so I think it's, it's, it's really important that we take every opportunity that we can take to kind of spend these values out to kind of say this is what we value as a community and this is what we value as a, as a country um, and that nobody should be treated differently because of it and people should be celebrated for going into politics and they should be celebrated for putting their head up and trying to contribute to the community Okay Brian I have to leave it there for the moment Thank you as always Brian Cloran Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM What could people in uh, the South or the Republic of Ireland do to persuade people people in the North or in Northern Ireland of the merits of a United Ireland. Well, let's hear the view of a prominent businessman in Belfast and member of the Ulster Unionist Council who said that under such a scenario that no tax whatever would be imposed on any raw materials used in manufacturing, that no attempt would be made to levy taxes upon exports, and that whatever changes might be made in education that the Protestant population would not have to worry about schools running the risk of being dominated by an educational policy which would be chiefly Roman Catholic and that language would be of great importance and that in the portion of Ulster which is mainly English or Scottish in race, that there would be no attempt to make the Irish language compulsory in schools or that ignorance of the Irish language would be a bar to promotion. He also said beyond these various points and more important than them all is the necessity for showing a genuine desire to adopt a friendly fraternal attitude towards the Ulster people. It's a surprising viewpoint I think I read it in the Irish Times in a letter that was published yesterday. The author of the letter is Ulisa Clancy of the Meath Peace Group, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Ulisa. And it's a view that was given by this member of the Ulster Unionist Council to your grandfather some time ago. Right, and good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, he was, um, my grandfather was um, one of those technical advisors with the treaty negotiations. And he was uh, sent up rather on a secret mission uh, while the treaty negotiations were going on and the Ulster issue was becoming very prominent in the discussions coming up to the treaty and what would happen in relation to Northern Ireland, which was already established, as you know. So this Um, is 1921? Yeah, in November 1921. In fact, it was discussed in October 1921 and through various leads and contacts that uh, they had, um, he went up then to meet with a group of um, uh, mainly unionists, but also Catholic businessmen and industrialists, and also the, the Catholic bishop of Down and Connor, Dr. McGrory. And he spent a week the first time just doing reports and analysing and meeting, and then he came back and back on several occasions during the, you know, after the treaty was signed and before the debates, and then, you know, during the debates and yeah. afterwards, and then that all ended when he went up on the final meeting to announce to the bishop why the Belfast boycott was going to be um, temporarily suspended. But in the meantime, as I say in the letter, um, quoting from his reports, which are in the National Archives and the National Library, and we also have quite a lot of his papers in Cork, where he um, you know, he is, he, he is 
finding out that the, the mood initially, now we don't know how representative mm. these were, but they were very prominent linen manufacturers and shipbuilders. And in fact, mm. I've been able to find the names of many of them. And um, there was this very positive attitude as the treaty negotiations were going on. Can I just read one other line out from uh, this viewpoint that was given to your grandfather, Dermot Fawcett? Uh, it says that uh, for this to work, there would have to be no desire for conquest or ascendancy that Ulster men will be welcome to assist in the task of building up a new Ireland. Let this be done and there will be little fear of the ultimate issue. Mm. It's a remarkable statement if it is reflective of the view. And that comes up again and again in not only in the reports but in letters that were written to him at the time and that he passed on and um, you know he was sent initially by De Valera and Barton and then by Griffith and then by Collins uh, you know they were all um, they were all there behind him going up and it was kept very very secret uh, probably to respect the confidentiality of the people who he was meeting and there was very positive views now it wasn't for you know absolute immediate but it would be looking at the future and how we could get on and there was even more remarkable views expressed in later, in, in earlier, the earlier reports when he met them, you know, much more positive towards the South and looking for, you know, let's just put be, past behind us, let's put violence, and that, that kept mm. coming up, remove the threat, remove the threat, and we can start to do business, you know. And sadly, as you know, we had the treaty split, we had the, some very, as they called it, extremist speeches in the door, which really unnerved them, and they felt they weren't in the position to do all that they felt they could do, um, in approaching Craig's government at that time because of the extremist speeches and the attitudes. And they're, in one letter, in fact, they're very disappointed at the, the lack of goodwill being shown by a lot of the southern TDs mm. towards the treaty, which was quite amazing, really. And it just shows how the circumstances of history then overcome, yeah. like, you know, we were soon into a civil war. And that type of dialogue, particularly with Northern Unionists, wasn't to happen again I don't think, until Hubert Butler started trying to do something in the 50s. Okay. And, and, and there was missed opportunities there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I suppose, what I was going to ask you. Do you believe there was an opportunity there in 1921, whilst there may not be an appetite or it might be an exaggeration to say there was an appetite, there was an acceptance that this was possible, if not probable, and uh, if... Uh, people were fair, well then people were willing to go along with the idea uh, and that that opportunity was missed. Yeah, and I mean, well, it's hard to know how representative they were. Mm. All I can say is that looking at the names we've been able to uncover, they were fairly prominent businessmen and influential and um, one of them was knighted afterwards, in fact, uh, for other work, charitable work. But they, 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 um, they were pragmatic businessmen, but they also... Um, you know, one of the main contacts was a Protestant home ruler who had shown his love of Ireland in, 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 in the previous period and had opposed partition, but he was just a contact for them to, to, to bring my grandfather in touch with these businessmen because he worked at Harland and Wolfe. And um, they, it, was, it was the seeds, I would say, the seeds that could have emerged in stronger in dialogue. And if you can imagine a scene where the violence would not have taken over. Now, there was violence in Northern mm. Ireland. There was, we had the truce, but violence had continued in Northern Ireland and there was sectarian violence. But then that was made, I think, all the more worse when the Civil War erupted and then we had the IRA and we had a lot of, uh, um, you know, tit-for-tat stuff going on in the North. Now, I mean, events happen and sometimes you can never do anything about them, but I think it was a terrible pity that 
those type of discussions could not have been continued uh, and brought fruit and at least listened to. But I was quite amazed when I discovered this now, maybe 10 years ago, in fact. Um, but I was quite amazed. I searched every history book and only found it mentioned in two mm. histories of the period and not in the context that they were. They were given very minor mentions in two books and nothing else. Whereas to me now, if I had seen those views yeah. in the four reports and all of that, if I'd seen them many years ago, I think it would have given me another look at unionist feeling at that time. But we, we were never to know that, really. You know, it was in the archives, but not really explored properly, I think. OK, fascinating. I have to leave there, Yulita. Yeah. I've run out of time. Thank you very much indeed. Yulita Clancy Thanks, of the Bead Peace Group brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.